Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. George. Hello. Hello. George? Hello? Hey, Ingram. Hey, fantastic. All right, I look like it might have bounced you off as soon as I first signed in, but uh, good deal. How's it going? Doing very well. Give me just one second to uh, sure. close the windows and turn off some of the other noise in here real quickly. Okay, sorry about that. You know, um, I think you need to be on in order for me to get on. It looks like you were on when I was first calling in, and then uh, I'm not sure what happened there, but you, well, may, you may be right. It was like the first time. Remember when I said I'd, mm-hmm. it would just went dead? Well, so I hung up and then called back, and then it kicked me right in because you were on. Okay. So I think, I think that's the drill. Anyways, uh, well, good, good. So, so we're going to uh, wrap it up tonight? Is that what the plan yeah, is? Yeah, absolutely. Good. I thought so. I uh, certainly thought about you Saturday afternoon. Michigan, Michigan State? Yes, sir. Yeah. Did you see that? I did. Yes, I did. It was I, – I'm still stunned by that thing. Of course, up here, everybody's still flipped out. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. Um. I actually feel sorry for that poor kicker. He was, oh, Lord, he, yeah. yeah. The kid is terrific. I mean, he was making mm-hmm. 80-yard punts and putting them back in the two-yard line and all this kind right. of crap. <laughs> Jesus, whoa. Uh, anyways, yeah, your boys did well. Yeah, they continue to uh, to keep plugging along. They, the schedule starts to get a little bit tougher here in the next couple of weeks. But uh, They play Tech Saturday, right? They play Tech Saturday. That's uh, here in Atlanta, so that's certainly convenient. Um, and then <clears throat> they have, uh, I believe they have an off week, or no, they don't have an off week. They play Tech, and then not the next week, but the next week they go travel to Clemson probably for a night game. That'll be that'll be a, probably the toughest game of the year. So, if they we run the table, couldn't they get up in the Final Four? I mean, they could. They, they probably would. In fact, if they were to uh, to somehow pull that off, they would be 
they would be uh, it would be hard for them to see them not get into the playoffs. But yeah, uh, you know, go undefeated from a power conference. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our little sleeper Toledo, they keep chugging along. Uh, they're ranked like 19th. Yeah, I've um, seen that. I've seen that. And you know, they're they're probably what stops our boys from getting to the playoff because we're in the same division with them. Mm-hmm. And we got to play them in a night game, sort almost at the end. Almost, they might even be the last game of the season. Uh, I don't think we can whoop them, but um, it's good for the MAC to have someone up there in the standing. So that's always good for us. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. MAC has carved out a great little niche for itself as well. Uh, yeah, they play very good football. And we can pump out some quarterbacks. I, I kept telling people I I saw this guy Rossenberger play for Miami of Ohio. Yep, <laughs> he came up to play Western. I said, "Man, this guy's really good." And then 13 months later, he was in the Super Bowl. I said, mm-hmm. "That's pretty damn good." <laughs> yeah, Roethlisberger. Uh, who else has played in that conference? Just, there's just been a lot of quarterbacks. Yeah, what, we we had five starting NFL quarterbacks at one time about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, who's the guy that played for Marshall? Byron Leftwich is the guy that I was the name the other name I was looking for. Yeah, Leftwich, and then uh, we had Charlie, uh, the guy that played for Eastern Michigan. He played. Anyways, we had five of them at one time. So yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun. Um, well, how do you want to do it today? How's the, what's the program? I figured we would uh, just start conversation here. I wanted. I know you talk a little bit about this, but I read something a couple of days ago that I wanted to ask you about, and that is. It's not exactly what you you did, but I, I want to certainly <clears throat> I got something in my throat. I'm sorry. I want to ask you about the stadium conversation and the the way that you know uh, private individuals use uh, sports teams and kind of yeah. wrap themselves in civic pride and things like that. But I also want to ask you about. The process, and again, this may not be something you're super familiar with, but the process that cities and states go through in trying to lure uh, places of either corporate relocations or the opening of a factory. I read uh, like Atlanta right now yeah. is very much involved in courting General Electric and right. may end up actually getting them uh, yeah. yep. in part because of other states' uh the way where they stood on the import export tax yep. uh, and, and other things. So I definitely wanted to ask you about that, and then I guess we we'll talk a little bit about just kind of uh, how your time ended at Kellogg and the you know the fact that you were offered a, a to an opportunity to return and you just kind of thought that that was not uh, not Had to move on best, yeah. yeah kind of a, a new chapter that had come about. So okay, good. Good. And then and if this is going to be the last one, I think I'd also like to say, you know, I mean, basically the, the takeaway from the book needs to be that if you're in business, you need you're by definition in government relations. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just integral to the to the fabric of business, whether you like it or not. And uh, I think, you know, to, to to ignore government relations is ignore the reality of doing business in America. Or it sounds like maybe even across the globe. So around the world, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we will get started here right now.
I'm Ingram Smith, and again, George. Uh, I am Ingram Smith, and again, I'm joined. Wow, I just can't get that out. <laughs> That's okay. Good thing you can edit this, right? Damn, good yeah. thing I can edit this. Well, yeah. you know, Ingram, just before you start, you know, when I used to do the live radio show, you know, I used to have people that say, oh, Frank, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. I'd say, you try getting in front of a mic that's live. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. take those words back. Right. And, you know, yeah. you, you try it and then come talk to me about how easy all this stuff is. Sit down in front of a, a hot mic and see how yeah. it goes. Absolutely. Yeah. I am Ingram Smith and, again, joined by George Franklin. Uh, George, certainly appreciate your time and uh, all the thoughts and, and just the conversation that we've been able to have up to this point. And this will, in all likelihood, kind of serve as our final conversation um, uh, just about general, not only what you write about and the lessons in serial wars, but uh, also just kind of a final macro conversation about uh, lobbying and government relations in general. So excited to uh, excited to talk to you once again. And I wanted to go ahead and get started with something that I have uh, forever found pretty interesting. And uh, I am a, a huge sports fan, but have right. kind of become increasingly jaded as to um, I guess the role that the public is expected to bear in some of the cost, uh, most most notably the cost of stadiums right. around right. the country, and it's something that you talked about in Chapter 10 and just wanted to kind of revisit that issue. Uh, I'll just uh, read, you know, read one of what I thought was one of the – a real fantastic passage from Serial Wars, and that is securing an insatiable demand for economic incentives – Commonly, commonly referred to as corporate wealth, securing an insatiable demand for economic incentives, commonly referred to as corporate welfare, has been the new growth area for government relations over the past couple of decades. The masters of this burgeoning field are the National Football League team owners. They adroitly combine civic pride with the possibility of an economic renaissance as the rationale for why taxpayers should give hundreds of millions of dollars to billionaires to build a factory, a.k.a. a stadium. So the 22 millionaires can run around a field eight times a year while wealthy fans from the suburbs watch. Yeah, and that, that that's what happens. And uh, Ingram, it's uh, – and, uh, you know, once again, I'm not editorializing, but it, that's the reality of what goes on. You watch uh, – you know, what, watch what's going on in Atlanta, Georgia right now. There's a baseball stadium and a football stadium being built, uh, and they're owned by very nice – generous but very wealthy people uh and the taxpayers are fit you know picking up the tab and i forget it's you know it's close to three quarters of a billion dollars of taxpayer money going to build the factories aka stadiums of these people in baseball that own baseball stadiums and own a and a football team and you know it whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, that's the reality of what's going on. And this whole area of economic incentives, I talk about being the new growth area of government relations. And it's an integral part of doing business now. Companies don't even think about investing in factories, building new factories, expanding, unless they approach government about what kind of incentive package you can get from the from the state, federal, whatever combination, and um, it's a very public debate. And right now, see where uh, once again Georgia, if you use them as an example, is courting General Electric. 
Well, there's an economic incentive package being presented to General Electric to move their corporate headquarters, and General Electric admits that it's politics, partly why they're leaving, because of some of the elected officials, the position they've taken on the export-import bank. So you have the incentive package intertwined with public policy positions of elected officials affecting where a company is going to move. Now, to say that business isn't affected by government relations is just to ignore the reality of what goes on every day in the corporate world. So you talk a little bit about your experience with Kellogg's uh, touring of a, of a potential factory site. Now, that is uh, that's certainly something I want to get your opinion of and all the logistics that go into it and whether or not a, a certain road can be built to a factory. Uh, just take us through that process a little bit and, and kind of from the side of the, uh, the employer or the, the potential entity that would be bringing jobs and, and families and have furthering, increasing a tax base and everything that the, the kind of the public officials look at when they start to court these various entities. But uh, what exactly was that process like as, as far as what you experienced? Well, typically there, there would be an internal decision in the company that either a let's make it easy that a, a new manufacturing facility is needed or or expanding some manufacturing facilities. So you, you, you'll you have some rough idea of what part of the country logistically you want to be in. So let's say you want to be in the southeast, and for distribution purposes and others, you need to either increase uh, a facility or, or build a new one. Well, you start looking at a three- or four-state region. Well, the, what the government relations team would do is we would make an overture uh, privately, confidentially, we would go to the three or four states. And uh, I will say that the, the economic development people in every state I ever dealt with could be totally trusted, never violated confidentiality, and are very professional people. But you go to them, and you'll say you go to Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and Mississippi. Let's just kind of make that up. Uh, and you would confidentially, you'd call down and meet with the, the appropriate people call and you say, I'm with Kellogg Company in this instance, and we're considering building a new facility, and we'd like to talk to you about sites and what kind of economic incentive package might be available from the state of XYZ. Um, usually it involves flying down to the capital, meeting with people, talking about how what the dollar investment would be, obviously what the product would be, how many people would be employed full-time employees, whether there would be benefits or not, what would be the rate of compensation. And then the state would put together the, quote, package. And the package might be, well, for each job you create, we'll give you a tax credit of this amount of money, or we can give you free land, and we can build access roads, and we can uh, give you credits on this and that and so on. And they put together a package. And so you'll have three or four competing packages, depending on how many states you go to. And that, of course, becomes part of the equation of where you go. Um, is it determinative? Not, not necessarily. Uh, it might be determined, even though one state had a better package than the other, the distribution advantages of being in one state outweigh that. But you would still get a package from whatever state you go to. And 
it all becomes very public at some point because these are public bodies. But while the negotiations are going on, it's it's, it's very confidential for and justifiably. I mean, businesses can't signal where they're going and what they're going to manufacture and, and what their next move is. And uh, the, the states need to honor that, and they do. So it becomes a, a process that may spread out over six, eight, nine months, a year, depending on the scope of the product project. But it's a it's a normal aspect of doing business now. That's what that's what I keep trying to explain to people. And I think I mentioned in the book. Uh, I know I mentioned in the book that the Cubs actually made news in Chicago by not taking an incentive package because they didn't want to be bound by the restrictions that came with it. But it is now so routine and so accepted that everybody just nods. And so when the the football team thinks they're going to leave Baltimore and go to Indianapolis, they get a huge package from the state of Indiana and the city of Indianapolis. And it's just, and, and um, it's, it's, you know, whether it's a, a food company, a football team, a baseball team, an airplane manufacturer. I mean, these are all profit-making businesses that usually are talking about how the government ought to get off their backs and leave them alone and, you know, don't impose regulation. But they're also very quick to take cash from the government when they can get it, and they're naive not to. Uh, But it is a little hypocritical at times. I mean, to sit there and... Uh, expound about free enterprise and good government offer backs and leave us alone and give us less regulation. But, oh, by the way, we will take the taxpayer's dollar when we want to build our new factory. George, is there any kind of noticeable or discernible difference between, say, hypothetically Kellogg trying to choose between uh, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, or, say, an overseas or international entity uh, maybe trying to choose whether or not to put a car plant in between uh, Georgia or Alabama or it's, Florida or something like it, that. It, it's all the same. It's the mm-hmm. same process. Um, you know, I mean, I've never worked in the auto industry, but I have done economic incentives overseas. I've worked on building a plant in Thailand where we got the Thai government to help us. Uh, they had economic incentive packages available. And actually they had a – it's interesting over there – you know, there's so many people in Bangkok uh, that they're trying to drive businesses away from Bangkok. So the further you went away from Bangkok, the more, uh, the, the bigger the incentive package the government would offer you. So they have an interest in where you locate and where you go. And, and so there's a it's sort of an interesting quirk over there. But, you know, when the auto guys come over here with, you know, Volkswagen, um, you know, they, they've got that big plant in Chattanooga. Well, they were looking at Georgia. They were obviously looking at Tennessee. My guess is they looked at South Carolina, uh, and they got packages, and then they finally decided where to plop down, and they plopped down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But it's the, it's the same process. Um, and and, in, and there are entire, there's an entire industry built around obtaining economic incentives. There, there I mean, there are accounting and tax firms that specialize in it. There are government relations firms that specialize in it. And then, of course, internally in the companies, you have people that devote a lot of time and effort out of the government relations department 
usually teamed up with the tax department to secure these incentives. Very interesting stuff and something that you see a lot in the news and maybe you don't necessarily associate with, uh, with lobbying or government relations, particularly the courting or the recruiting of uh, whether it be a corporate headquarters, whether it be a particular auto plant. Uh, so I was I was interested to get into that chapter in general and particularly interested to hear your thoughts on it. Um, well, you know, I guess, Inger, if I could just interject too, I mean, the, you know, the, the big picture, the big number ones, I should say rather, you know, the football and baseball and, you know, the corporate headquarters of these big companies. But small companies can avail themselves of it. That's what always intrigues me is, that you know, a company that has 50, 60, 75 people, if they know where to go, they know who to ask and how to ask it, oftentimes these incentives are available, and it's found money. It costs mm-hmm. them little, if anything, to get it. Um, and so I always try to impress upon these you know, you know, more modest-sized businesses that they can take advantage of this just like, you know, GE Kellogg and the Atlanta Falcons can, uh, but they just need to know who to go to, how to position it, and actually I put in the book there a little checklist of sort of, you know, requirements to start this process. But it's found money, it's there, and once again, it's the reality of doing business. Yay or nay, good or bad, up or down, whatever your politics, that's what's going on. Interesting, interesting perspective on uh, on a topic and a series of conversations that we'll probably only hear more about uh, as we move forward. I, I don't get the feeling that that's going anywhere. Um, in Chapter 11, you kind of talk a little bit about how your time ended at Kellogg. It was interesting uh, if you have, were familiar with politics of the kind of early 2000s. Certainly, Carlos Gutierrez was a, a name that uh, that resonated, and it was uh, something that I. I guess recognized as soon as I began this book, but uh, obviously you were uh, worked under Gutierrez at, at Kellogg as he was the chief executive officer there, right. um, and you developed a strong relationship with him. And then, uh, just for I guess my own personal perspective, I worked in politics a little bit, and you talk uh, about a brief interaction that occurs between Gutierrez and George Bush, and I personally tell you that I would have thought the same thought that that was more or less kind of a token comment made uh, that he might have made four or five different individuals along yeah, the campaign yeah. trail that day. Um, yeah, it ended so up not being token. What, what you're referring to is in, in the 04 re-election campaign of uh, George W. Bush, he came through Battle Creek, Michigan, and uh, Carlos came down the hall and he said, come on, let's go out to the, you know, up to the baseball stadium where the rally was being held and you know, he said, let's just go out and see what's going on here. So he and I hopped in his car, and, and uh, once again, this all in the book, and then we got out there. And since I was with Carlos, we were sitting there with the mayor and the congressmen and the state senators and, you know, all the sort of, you know, dignitaries. And when the uh, event was over, the advance man for President Bush came by and said, you know, the president would like to meet with, you know, five or six of you and, it was the mayor, it was the congressman, Carlos. And so they all left, and I said, well, I'll just, you know, I'll wait over here by the car. When you get back, we'll ride back to the headquarters. Well, when he got back, we got the car, and he was driving back, and he goes, uh, I think that guy offered me a job. And I said, what? 
And he said, yeah, yeah. He said something about, you know, when this thing's over, you're, you're coming on the team. And I went, oh, Carlos, hell, he probably told that to 20 people today, you know, up and down the, you know, campaign trail. He'd been he'd been doing a swing in a bus through southwest Michigan. And uh, so here I am, Mr. Whizbang, right? I said, oh, hell, you know, he didn't, you know, offer you a job. And he goes, no, 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 really, I think that guy's offered me a job, <laughs> which I, you know, took with a grain of salt. Well, you know, proved out how much did I know, right? I mean, he, he was offered him a job, and he did offer him a job. Um and he ended up becoming the Secretary of Commerce. And as I always explain to people that if you've been in political science 101 at Florida State University and you'd put down that Carlos Gutierrez was going to be this guy that really wasn't involved in politics, was not a bundler, was not a big contributor, um, you know, low-key in the political world, that he was going to be made Secretary of Commerce, you'd probably flunk the exam in political science 101 justifiably um well you know here it is he was made secretary of commerce um and then he'd asked me to go with him and then uh for partisan political reasons uh some republicans from michigan came and objected to carl rove that i be included because they said i was too much of a democrat so uh Andy Card, the chief of staff, called Carlos and said, uh, you know, you can't take Franklin with you. And I had flown in Washington that day, and I was going to actually actually signing the you know, rental agreement on a place to live. And uh, I went over to the hotel, and Carlos says, you know, hey, we got a problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, Andy Card has called and said that Carl Rove has uh, nixed you. And I went, whoa, you know, and I said, and he, uh, I said, well, you know, he said, well, what do we do now? And I said, well, Carlos, you know, you haven't even been confirmed. I've said to try to take on Carl Rove. And I said, what did Card said? And Card said, well, you know, the only thing Carlos could do was go to the president. And I said, hey, listen, I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I'm out of here. I said, even if you were to prevail, I'd have a target on my back from the day I walked in. So, you know, it, it's just time for me to move on. And um, I always kind of laughed because I was walking out the door, and he said, well, he said, well, what are you going to do now? And, and I turned around. I said, you know, Carlos, I really haven't had a lot of time to think about that. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so what happened was, and I, I never took it personally. It's, it's the petty politics of Washington. Um, it, actually, it's one of the reasons people hate Washington is just the petty stuff. And then the funny part was it actually got into a Washington Post column that I'd been, as I put it, fired before I got hired. And the column was actually very complimentary to me. It was talking about, you know, how I was well-respected in Michigan and well-liked and worked both sides of the aisle. But, you know, kind of it ended up by saying, well, you know, Carlos, welcome to Washington. Um, and the Kellogg people were wonderful. And they said, well, you know, just come on back here. And uh, it was, you know, I'd had a uh, – my wife had died two years before. And uh, I really needed to move on. And I thought, you know, personally, I, I, don't, I can't go back to Kellogg. And I just I just need to head out in a different phase in my life here. So I went off and I said, well, I'll start my own business, uh, which is what I did. I created Franklin Public Affairs, which, was, which is, was and is very successful, uh, which I enjoyed doing for the last 10 years now. And uh, it was during, you know, after a couple of years, I decided, you know, I really need to write a book 
about lobbying and government relations because it, it, it's just I, – I go back to Ingram. It it's, amazes me that business schools just act like it doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, my original premise of the book was that people ought to have some notion in business of what those people down the hall in government relations do, uh, and the book is designed as a is an overview. It's not philosophical. It's, um, it's it does no political bent to it. I don't think, but it's real world. What you do lobbying for a major international company, and uh, I've you know enjoyed it. It's been well received. I've been to a lot of colleges speaking about it. And it's it's been a fun been fun endeavor, and uh, if I do say so, successful. But anyways, that's that's how I ended up leaving Kellogg. That's how I ended up writing this book. Um, that's why I'm now on the college civic club tour with it. And uh, as I just said, I'm having a great time doing it. Well, you sound like somebody that's. Uh you know, certainly was was comfortable with your decision and and confident that kind of uh, not necessarily that your time had run out, but just that your time had maybe uh, kind of naturally transitioned to a new stage in your life, and that yeah. certainly appears to be the case. Um, one part of the whole Gutierrez back and forth is that you mentioned that you went and met him at the Willard Hotel, right? Um, and you mentioned the the kind of etymology of the word lobbyist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is your personal belief that the term comes from people that used to go see uh, Ulysses Grant down in the no. bar with the idea that they could catch him in the lobby, or that it dates no. a little further back? I, I, I think it goes further back, and um, there's there's a little bit of debate. I don't think a lot, but um, I think it comes from the British Parliament and where favor seekers would stand outside in the lobby, outside of Parliament, and they became known as lobbyists. One of the stories that you just referred to is it came from favor seekers, and since they weren't called lobbyists at that time, favor seekers that would hang out in the lobby of the uh, Willard Hotel, which is, if you don't know Washington, the Willard is on the other side of the Treasury Building from the White House, so it's you know a block down the road. And uh, President Grant would come there in the evening, and the other politicians would come, you know, cut through all the BS, they'd come over to the bar at the Willard Hotel, and they'd come through the lobby, and there would be people there, you know, approaching them about, can you do this, can you do that? So one of the, the stories is, or one of the theories is, the word lobbyist came from the Willard, but I think that the term predates Grant and the Willard Hotel. Fair enough. Just something that I well, I wanted to ask you about as far as uh, as far as just the history of the term and where it all kind of stems from. Uh, you talk about kind of why you wanted to write the book and what you hope people take from it. Um, this has been certainly an enjoyable and kind of interesting life, or excuse me, an enjoyable and interesting look at 30 years of a, kind of the life of a lobbyist and somebody who. I guess lobbied for one of the the better known brands uh, that this country has to offer. Um, you mentioned a little bit about why you wrote the book and the general takeaway that you would want people to have, and that is just the uh, kind of 101 or, or uh, introductory understanding as to what the people in, in the government relations department do in their company and how they occupy their time. 
Uh, is there anything else, any other kind of themes that you would want or, or hope that people would take away from reading this book? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, I mean, I always explain to people that if you're in business, you by definition need to be in government relations because it's an integral part of doing business everywhere in the world. Okay, so that's that's first first item. Secondly, it, it is an extremely misunderstood profession. And when in my speaking engagements, I talk about, you know, lobbyists are held in very low esteem. Okay, it's you know they're with telemarketers and used car salesmen and all that sort of bit. You know, in far as you know, integrity and respect. The ironic part is. To be a good lobbyist, you have to be the exact opposite of the image lobbyists have. To be a good lobbyist, you have to be trusted, you have to be straightforward, you have to be reliable. Because you can go pull a fast one on a politician one time, maybe, and get away with it. But once you do that, and they're aware of it, you're out of business. You're done. What they need to do is to be able to rely that you are telling them the straight skinny, politically, substantively, uh, on both fronts, and that they can rely on you to be truthful, candid, and straightforward. And And if you ever lose that image, you're done as a lobbyist. And sure, there there are bad, you know, bad apples. Okay, Jack Abramoff was a bad apple. Okay. Well, they're bad companies. You know, look at Volkswagen just recently, mm-hmm. you know, defrauded the whole environmental, you know, Clean Air Act, uh, Enron, Tyco. So, I mean, every industry has good and bad people. But the fundamental image of lobbyists is exactly opposite of what real lobbyists are. And that's something I've tried to get across to people. And, um, you, you know, you you carry the image of the company with you, and it's, it's, a, it's a combination of your integrity and the company's integrity that's going to make you a successful lobbyist. You can't lobby if it, the company doesn't have integrity, and the company is going to find you of little, if any, use if you, on the other hand, don't have integrity. So it's built on trust, reliability, and um, being straightforward. Well, it certainly is, and it's um, it exists because it works. Uh, you know, you mentioned this. If you're going to have companies like uh, Kellogg or Exxon or Coca-Cola or whatever kind of blue chip company you want to insert into this equation, uh, most of those companies do not make a habit of just wildly spending money that there's not returns attached to. Uh, And and as you point out, the 2001 article or 2011 article in the Washington Post uh, compared the returns that corporations get on lobbying to to that of some of the, you know, so that of the nation's more successful hedge funds as far as return on investment. Uh, lobbying and, and lobbyists exist because it's uh, it's something that is uh, is effective and it's something that corporations see uh, you know see return on their dollar. I, I did want to ask you one thing, kind of tied to that. 
is that you mentioned that lobbyists and journalists are probably the two private sector jobs that are really protected by the Constitution. They're, they're the only two that I know of. I mean, some, some constitutional lawyer may correct me, but there's only two private sector jobs that are protected by the Constitution, and they're both in the, both in the First Amendment. And it's freedom of the press, i.e. journalists, or the ability to redress your grievances, i.e. lobbyists, also in the First Amendment. And uh, so it's, it's two private sector jobs. And Ingram, back on your point about the profitability of lobbying, a couple of sentences, a couple of words, I don't even know sentences, a couple of words in the tax code can swing companies hundreds of millions of dollars they either gain or lose and it's a couple of words uh and the the power of uh of of government relations uh is 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 significant and sometimes it's less less direct and you know a little bit more diluted than the example of the tax code but literally a couple of words in the tax code can swing hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, so it's 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 critical for offensive purposes and defensive purposes. Well said. Well, uh, George, is there any kind of anything else that you would like to say as we more or less kind of wrap this conversation up? This has been a, a fantastic look at the book overall, and certainly hope people have enjoyed uh, not only listening to the book and, and listening to what you put into text, but also. Uh, just our conversations in general, and uh, would certainly encourage people to uh, to take a look at Raisin Brand and other serial wars if uh, if they have continued interest uh, or anything else that uh, that you're currently doing as far as your speeches or um, some of the interactions that you have with high schools, universities. Uh, is there any kind of final message that you would want to uh, impart? Well, you know, if anybody wants to contact me, they can contact me at george at franklinpublicaffairs.com. And uh, uh, as you can imagine, I enjoy talking about this. I love speaking the groups. Uh, it's, it's, it's become uh, something I've been doing a lot of, and I'd enjoy hearing from people. And Ingram, I just want to thank you. It's, uh, I've enjoyed these conversations. You've, you've made me examine some of the things I've written and uh, some some great insight into you know the, the world of lobbying. So I've appreciated what you've done and enjoyed it immensely. And I hope the listeners to this, if uh, uh, hopefully they'll buy the book. Uh, and uh, if they have any questions, comments, let, want me to appear before a group, once again contact me at George at FranklinPublicAffairs.com. Well, thank you very much for saying that, George. This has been fantastic. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading this book and and would thoroughly uh, or would very much recommend uh, people take a look at it, and it's not every day that an author will give you their uh, personal email address, so uh, certainly an opportunity to reach out and have continued correspondence with you if uh, if they so choose, or if there's something in this book that maybe they have a continued line of questions on. Okay, enjoyed it. All right, well... Uh Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.